Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, have you ever gone on a road trip or a vacation of some sort and forgotten to pack properly? Okay? Maybe it's something as simple as you, uh, you know, forgot weeks worth of socks. It's never happened to me. Um, or maybe, uh, you know, it wasn't that you packed properly, you didn't plan properly, and you were running out of gas before the next gas station, and you had to, like, walk in the heat to get gas. Maybe, God forbid, you ran out of snacks. Whatever it is. Have you ever had an opportunity, like, a situation where you were, like, going on a trip, planning to pack, and didn't have enough of the stuff? Uh, a couple of, of, of days ago, I saw this story on CNN. Um, it was uh, an Australian sailor that got rescued after spending two months adrift at sea. By the way, doesn't that look like Tom Hanks? Which leads me to the next question. If I drop an average white guy in an island for six months, would he come out looking like Tom Hanks with a long beard from Castaway? Anyway, um, this is actually a picture of him before uh, this trip. This, his name is Tim Shaddock, uh, and that's his dog, Bella. And she's a good girl. Look at her. Anyway, he's an Australian man. He was in Mexico, and he was planning to do a trip to the French Polynesian Islands. Took off from Mexico, and a couple of days into that trip, there's a storm that damaged all of the electronics on his boat. So he spent the next two months adrift. Eventually, a helicopter that was flying over identified him, and then a tuna trawler came and rescued him. And when they're kind of like interviewing him, like they asked him, how did you survive? And he's basically, well, when he ran out of supplies, he started living off raw fish in rainwater. This dude is never having sushi again in his life. But he's alive, right? And, you know, I've been thinking about that story because, you know, he was not expecting when he woke up and set up on his trip and had all his, his stuff packed for his trip, he was never expecting, I'm going to spend two months adrift at sea. So he was trying to make the best with what he had, and thankfully he survived. And I'm telling you this because today we're taking a look at a passage of people on a road trip that had a journey ahead that was way longer than they had anticipated. And they didn't pack properly. Uh, we're in the summer series that we're calling Road Trip. And the whole idea of the series is that there are all these stories in the Bible of people on the road, literally, having these incredible encounters with God. That they end up learning something about God. They end up learning, learning something about themselves. And our encounters actually change them and challenge them in a profound way. And today, we're going to look at a passage that's part of the story of the longest road trip in the Bible which is the journey that the people of Israel take from Egypt into the promised land. Now, the particular passage we're looking at is not exactly a story. It's actually a, a speech. It's part of a speech given by Moses, the same guy that we looked at last week, as the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. So with that, if you want to go with me to the book of Deuteronomy, I'm going to start reading uh, verse, uh, chapter 8. I'm going to start reading on verse 1. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He needed to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out, 
and your feet didn't blister or swell. So a lot going on here. Um, the, the setting of this story is the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy, if you're familiar with the first book of the Bible, you have Genesis, kind of like the story of the beginning of everything. And then you get Exodus, Leviticus, and Number. And they kind of like all tell a story together, which is the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and then going through the desert. Deuteronomy functions a little bit different because Deuteronomy is basically kind of like a recap of those three books that's given to the new generation that's about to enter the promised land because they've been 40 years in the desert. All the people that leave Egypt actually die in the desert. And then this new generation that's coming in and Moses kind of like gives them this book-long speech about everything that happened. That's kind of like the book is, is set up. Now, here's what's fascinating. When you read at the beginning of this story, the, 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 the Bible gives you kind of like a different explanation as to why the people of Israel spent 40 years in the desert. If we have got 40 years to the book of Numbers, we're going to see the story of how this happened. So the people of Israel actually make it to the promised land for the first time. And in reality, the trip from Egypt, from uh, Mount Sinai to the promised land, is not that long of a trip. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1 verse 2 says this. Normally, it takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, going by the way of Mount Seir. You get that? It was an 11-day trip that ends up becoming a 40-year trip. Now, listen, my wife is here. She won't let me lie. I'm a notorious overpacker. So I think, like, if we rank, like, obviously, Jack goes first because he's a kid and we need diapers and toys and whatever. Then it's me as far as how much we pack for. Then it's Megan, much to her chagrin, right? Because my thinking is always you got to be prepared for every occasion. Like, what if it's like a black tie event that we have to go and you need, like, hard soul shoes, right? So I, I, I tend to pack a lot. She makes fun of me for that. That's fine, right? Listen, even in my most preparedness of, like, wanting to pack a lot, I don't think I would be planning, hey, what if this two-week vacation that we're about to go in it's going to turn into a 40-year vacation. Right? Nobody thinks like that. So uh, anyway, the Israelites get there the first time. And when they get there, uh, they send 12 spies to kind of like spy out the land, make sure everything is right. And the, the report that comes back, the spies are terrified of the promised land. And they're like, there's all these giants. We're never going to be able to conquer this land. It's too much for us. They're going to kill us all. And the people of Israel that hear this report literally enter into this mass panic a riot breaks out. They try to kill Moses and Aaron. It's a whole thing. And after this all happens, Moses comes to God, and Moses is like, God, look at these people, right? So God intervenes. And if you've ever, have you ever gotten in trouble, and you deserve to get in, get in trouble? Like, like, you knew it was wrong, and you did it, and your mom and your dad, like, read you the riot act? Like, listen to this passage in that voice. Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long must I put up with this wicked community and its complaints about me? Yes, I have heard the complaints the Israelites are making against me. Now, tell them this. Surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. You will all drop dead in this wilderness because you complained against me. Every one of you who is 20 years old or older and was included in the registration will die. You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to give you. The only exceptions will be Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. You said your children would be carried off as plunder. Well, 
I will bring them safely into the land, and they will enjoy what you have despised. But for you, you will drop dead in this wilderness. And your children will be like shepherds wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. In this way, they will pay for your faithlessness until the last of you lies dead in the wilderness. Because, keep going, because your men explored the land for 40 days, you must wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a year for each day, suffering the consequences of your sins. Then you will discover what it's like to have me for an enemy. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will certainly do these things to every member of the community who has conspired against me. They will be destroyed here in the wilderness, and here they will die. Whew! Man, good morning, happy Sunday. Yeah, Jesus loves you. <laughs> Listen, there's tons of stuff to parse in this passage. This is not a sermon about God's judgment or justice or righteousness. So you have questions about that? I'm going on a two-week vacation to talk to Robin, and she would love to answer your question. But... What I want to call your attention to this morning is that in these two passages that we read, we get two very uh, different explanations as to why the people of Israel are wandering in the desert, right? In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says they wander in the desert for 40 years because God wants to test them. In the book of Numbers, the explanation is different, is that it was a punishment for not believing that God could carry them into the promised land, and you know, the whole trying to kill Moses and everything. Now, which is it, right? Um, most, um, you know, biblical scholars are coming, look at the Bible kind of more as like literature and have like the historical critical approach will tell you, well, you know, these are two different traditions that had two different perspectives and had two different agendas, so you get like these two different stories. And I actually think that there's something else going here as to why we get those two accounts. And the reason, at least for me, is that these two accounts are addressed to two different groups of people. The passage in Numbers that we read is addressed to the older generation of Israelites who rejected God and rebelled against him and ended up, ended up dying in the desert. The Deuteronomy passage that we read first is not addressed to them. Remember, they're about to enter the promised land. Forty years have passed since the Numbers passage that we read. And a lot of those people have died by now. He, Moses cannot be addressing them because they're dead. The people that are hearing Moses in Deuteronomy are the people that were 20 years or younger and the people that were born during those 40 years in the desert. You know, the original rebellion that leads to the wandering in the desert wasn't their doing. So, so I think that part of what Moses is doing is Moses is trying to give them a new way of understanding their trial, a new way of understanding this 40-year experience that they had. What he's saying is, listen, well, the primary reason why the people of Israel as a whole have been wandering for 40 years in the desert is because their parents had rebelled against God. That didn't mean that God wasn't doing something in this new generation during these 40 years. What led to them wandering in the desert for 40 years wasn't their fault. But that doesn't mean that they were just helpless victims of circumstance. God was still doing something in them, testing their hearts, showing them things, teaching them things. And listen to this, providing for them and sustaining them. 
There's this line in the Deuteronomy passage that I've always found incredibly moving. He says, you know, for 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. Moses is looking at this generation that's about to enter into the promised land and he says to them that the evidence of God's presence and provision is the fact that they survived. That God made those clothes and their sandals last for 40 years. And that they're still around. Um, you know, in the last kind of like 20, 30 years, in, at least in the Western church, there's been kind of like this emergence of what we call like prosperity theology. And like our church, you know, doesn't adhere to that. But I do think that it's been so popular that kind of some of these tenants have kind of like seeped into the larger culture. One of those ideas that I think is incredibly damaging is that we've tended to equate excess and abundance with God's blessing. That our assumption is that only when things are going great and when there's no trouble and when there's no problem and when there's no suffering, that that's when God, when God is present. And in this story, the people of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And they're about to face their biggest challenge yet, right? It would be natural for them to be afraid or bitter about the situation. And, and, and it's fascinating that God is looking at them and he's saying, actually, don't you see that I've been with you this whole time? And how you know that I've been with you this whole time is not because you have a bigger house and a nicer car and more money in your bank account. The reason how you know that I've been with you this whole time is because you're still alive. That I've sustained you through these 40 years. And I wonder if sometimes our experience of God, it's not unlike what the Israelites experienced in the desert. Because you see, you know, in the road trip of life, we're going to continue using the metaphor, not everything goes according to plan, does it? There are a lot of detours that happen. I think just a couple of months ago, we did a series about this, the whole idea of dealing with detours. Uh, for the people of Israel, they were going on a, on a journey that was supposed to last 11 days and took them 40 years. That's a heck of a detour, man. But if we're honest for a second, for many of us, that's been the case, right? Some of us started out college with this clear path. And we're doing something completely unrelated to the four or five years that we spent in college because that's kind of like where life took us. Uh, I, it, my uh, seminary journey, I, you know, got out of college. I was working at an insurance agency and eventually started seminary. First seminary started out, I realized it wasn't for me. Like, it, was, it wasn't a good match, so I switched schools. The second seminary started out, like, I lasted one semester and the seminary closed. And it was right around the time that also, like, Maya and I were, were thinking about getting married. And I was kind of, like, looking at my bank account. I was like, I can go to seminary or I can get married. I can do both. So I chose the girl. Don't regret it. Okay, best decision of my life, right? But then that meant that I spent the next, like, seven, eight years kind of, like, not being able to afford. I didn't graduate seminary until 2020. It took me 10 years to finish my master's degree, right? Because that's life. Like, you kind of have a plan and try to start, and it takes you into this Weird detour. Now, this is the thing. That also happens in more serious stuff, right? 
Some of us get married in love, thinking that we're going to spend the rest of our lives with that person, only to find ourselves divorced or widowers a few years later. Some of us start this business or this career with these goals and dreams and hopes of what it's going to become like. Then a few years later, it doesn't work out and we have to start over again. Some of us plant a church and we think that that's where we're going to be pastoring the next 20 years of our life. And a few years in, it has to shut down. That happened to me, by the way. Like, just don't make a joke about anything else. Um, and the thing is, I could go on and on all morning with examples like this. And the reality is that we've all spent some time wandering in the desert. And normally when we wander in the desert, there's a couple of things that start happening to us because of that. Like our experiences start feeling like a waste of time. Uh, you know, we look at their, their past and we look at the time that we spent in that business, in that relationship, in that church. And because things didn't progress the way we thought they were going to progress or because things kind of like went sideways from, hey, well, we think, okay, now I've wasted two, three, four, five years of my life in this thing. And because things didn't work out, what does it feel like? We feel like we've wandered in the desert, which usually leads us to question God, right? Because you're like, I made this decision, and I thought I had good intentions in my mind. I thought it was going to work out. I was trusting you, and I prayed for this. And then it didn't work out. So what is it, God, right? So we start questioning God and why we're in that situation. And usually, if we don't deal with that, we can become bitter, about our situation, about our past, about a particular industry, about relationships, whatever it is, bitterness seeps in. And the problem with that is that eventually, bitterness sort of like turns into defeatism, so to speak. We stop trying because we become so jaded or apathetic about whatever the thing is that didn't work out that we think that it's never going to wake up, work out. And the problem with that is that we're still alive, right? So you still have to pay bills, and you probably still have a family to provide for, and you still have to wake up in the morning and go to work. The problem is that after these experiences go wrong, our hope starts kind of like very slowly, like, winning out. And we start becoming people that just go through the motions. We just go to work because we have to go to work, and we kind of like stay in this relationship we have to, and we parent because we have to, but there's no hope, there's no joy, there's no vision for the future. Some of us, maybe we had these dreams that maybe it wasn't even just our dreams, but stuff that God put in our hearts, and that because it didn't work out first, all of a sudden it starts feeling like it's never going to work out. And we kind of like just put it apart, up on a shelf, and forget about it because things didn't work out the first time. And what's fascinating about this passage is that the people of Israel have spent 40 years in that mode, wandering in the desert sort of aimlessly. But the passage that we're reading, it's not just wandering in the desert. It's a passage as they're about to enter into the promised land. And what that means is that the fact that their parents failed to enter the promised land and the fact that they spent 40 years wandering in the desert, it seems not to preclude them from entering into a better future. And it seems not to preclude them from still being able to inherit 
the promises of God for them. And the question for us today, I think, is could the same be true for us? Is there still hope for us? Because if there's anything that I can glean from this passage, is that maybe the fact that we're still here, some of us tired, some of us in debt, some of us broke, some of us alone, some of us probably in a worse place than we were five years ago or ten years ago. But we're still here. We've survived. Somehow there's been food on our tables. And somehow there's been a roof over our heads. It was difficult. It was trying. You wanted to give up. You wanted to throw in the towel. But you're still here. Your clothes did not wear out. And your feet did not blister or sweat. What if that survival is evidence that God never abandoned you? And the question then becomes, if God hasn't abandoned you, what if that also means that God isn't done with you? Now, as we look into the future, so imagine we're there, we're about to enter the promised land. I think there's two things that we need to kind of like process through as we walk in that we see from this passage. The first thing is this, okay? You have to let God redeem your story. Um, listen to a bunch of podcasts. And one of the podcasts I listen to is called Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've listened to it before. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell kind of like the same approach that he takes to his books, he takes to the podcast. He kind of like looks at different events that happened in the past or some sort of like commonly held assumption. He kind of like pokes at it. He's asking questions and does interviews and research. And the whole point he's trying to make is that could it be that our understanding or general assumption of this topic is probably the consequence of revisionist history, that things actually didn't happen the way we think happened. That's kind of like something underneath that. And in a way, when I look at this passage of God telling the people of Israel during these 40 years that you thought you were just wandering in the desert, actually, I was testing you, and I was working in you, and I was preserving you. What if, I mean, this is like the corniest pastor thing to say, like come up with a pun like this, but I'm going to do it. What if what God was doing was engaging in some redemptionist history? Thank you for that laugh. I appreciate it. Chocolate. Okay. What I mean by that is this. Uh, what if God can truly redeem our past? Not only in the sense of like forgiving our sins and giving us a fresh start, but what if I can redeem our story? What if I can redeem our failures and our mistakes and our moments of suffering, what what we would call our time in the desert? And I think that when God redeems our story, there's three things that he kind of like shows us. The first is this, that God has been with us all along. Verse 2 of the Deuteronomy passage says, remember how the Lord your God led you. 
The first thing that God is doing is kind of like retelling their story in the desert. But my guess is that God tells that story differently than how the average Israelite that had been in the desert for 40 years would tell the story, right? The average Israelite would say, man, this is terrible. Like, we've been here for 40 years, and it's the same food, and there's no end inside, and I wish I was back in Egypt. Like, like that's usually when we're in a difficult situation, that's usually we tend to complain. And God's telling that story, and he's being different. He says, actually, I was with you the whole time. And, he says, and you know that because you're still alive. I provided you with food to sustain you and, and shoes who magically don't wear out, right? And feet who don't blister or swell. What if God wants to show us is that through this difficult time, whatever that was for you, the time where you felt like you failed, the time that you maybe felt like it was a waste, that, that, that he was right there with you all along, every step of the way. And the evidence that God, God points to as proof of his presence, again, is not how much money is in your bank account or how successful your business or your career is. The evidence that God proves of his presence in your life is your own survival. The problem is that for many of us, that's not sufficient proof. Let me give you an example. We live in a world that glorifies numbers and massive success. I see that in church world all the time. And like as a church planter of a small struggling church, always kind of like, you know, that always wrong against me, right? Because the, the churches where guys moving or guys doing something is the big churches that the pastors are getting invited to conference and whatnot. And, and, and uh, a couple months ago, I read this, this study uh, from Lifeway Research that said that the attendance of the average church in America, it's 65 people. The question is then, okay, so does God not move in those churches, right? Is it like a number? Like, okay, when you hit 100, I'm going to show up, right? Now, I'm going to show up like a lot. I'm sure, like, you will cry during one worship song. Like, that's how much you get, right? Then when you hit 200, boy, like, like the melody are going to hit, right? And when you get 500, that's when they start healing people and fixing marriages. No, right? Of course, we, we wouldn't think that guy is like that. But we think a lot of times that guy is like that in our lives. Why? Because we live in a, church, in, in a, in a culture that's obsessed with comparison. So we lay, look at our roommate from college who got married around the same time we got married. But whose marriage didn't end up in divorce. And he or she have been married for 20 years. And they have three kids. And they have the perfect career. And the dogs. And the cat. And the cars. And our lives look different because our story is different. And it's so easy to think, well, God was there, God wasn't here. And what God is doing to the people of Israel, actually, no, I was with you. And what I have to prove to you that I was with you is that when you look at a mirror, there's still a person on the other side. And there's still breath in your lungs. I've preserved you. Which leads me to the second thing. That if that's true, that God has been with us, then our time in the desert isn't a waste. I want to show you something in the passage that we just read. Deuteronomy 8. Look at this. Can you show the passage? There we go. Come on. Come on. Work with me. Show me the next passage, please. There we go. Okay. 
Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness, humbling you, testing you to prove your character, to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. He humbled you, he to teach. Those are all verbs. And they're not verbs about stuff you were doing or they were doing. They're verbs about stuff that God was doing. So God showing the people of Israel, all these 40 years, I've been at work. I've been moving. I've been doing stuff in your life. Your time in the desert isn't wasted. I've been preparing you for things. Um, I was reflecting on my own journey in church planting. And I shared before, it was really hard, really difficult. And I felt like, May and I, the year that I wasn't working at a church, kind of like reflecting on, I've learned so much, mostly about things I'm not good at, right? And now that I'm at this church, I see a lot of those lessons that I learned sort of like paying off. And me being able to put them into practice. If you ask me, two, three, four years ago when I was at this church, suffering and going through difficult time, I probably wouldn't have been able to see that. Okay, all this time God was preparing me, and maybe it wasn't even for that assignment, but for this assignment. So you guys benefit from my suffering, okay? Which leads me to the third thing, right? So if God's been with us, and if our time in the hasn't been a waste, then that means that God isn't done with us. This morning's passage starts with this line. It says, be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today, then... You will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. The context of this passage is that the people of Israel are about to exit the desert and enter into the promised land. In other words, their story isn't over. The thing they trust in nation, 40 years earlier, they're about to give you a second shot. And I wonder if part of the reason why guys... Kind of like reminding them all that he has done is because as they're facing the future, they need to have hope and believe that God is going to go with them. But it's also this. It's also the idea that just because their parents failed and just because they've been 40 years in the desert, it doesn't mean that they're done forever. It doesn't mean that their story is over. Which takes me kind of like to the second big lesson about moving forward. So first of all, we have to let God redeem our story and show us all these things. But the second thing is that once God redeems your story, most of the time, God invites us to begin again. Last week, we looked at Moses, 80 years, thinking about retirement, probably feeling like he failed that his life has passed him by, that his best days were behind him. God shows up in a burning bush and says, what? It's time to begin again. I'm looking at a you know, room this size, and I don't know your stories, but chances are that there's stuff that you've gone through, dreams that you had, hopes that you had, illusions about life, that the detours of life kind of like just crush down. And there are elements in your life that if you were honest, you said, yeah, I felt like I was in the desert. And that I've been in the desert for this long. 
What if God wants to tell you is look at your life. Look at your feet. That haven't blistered or swollen during these four years. The shirt on your back that I've kept perfectly ironed. The fact that I've sustained you, that you're here. You're here right now. If you're here right now, this message is for you. Because you're alive. What if what that means then is that maybe you and me and all of us, there are areas in our lives that we're invited to begin again. To hope again. To trust again. To step into faith again. I remember years ago hearing a, a, a sermon from a pastor in California about this. And he said this. It's always kind of like, stay with me. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is purpose in your chest. I don't know what's your story. I don't know what you've left behind. I don't know what you've suffered. But chances are that we are all a fellowship of desert wanderers. That all of us have experienced this. Many guys looking at all of us and saying, Can you see that I've kept you? That your shirt didn't wear out. And that your feet did not blister as well. That you're still around. And that if you're still around, I'm not done with you. We're going to enter a time of communion, and um, you know how I made the pun of redemption is history, but I mean, honestly, that's, that's this right here, right? That, that, that we, Jesus says, you know, like the story says that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and forgive me things, he broke it, and then he said, this is my body broken for you. And, and there's a very kind of like real theological way in which that means Jesus is suffering for our sins and being punished for our sins, Right? There's also a sense in which that means your suffering, your heartbreak, your, your failed business, your relationship, your divorce, like all of that. What if I was to join you in that and then be able to tell a different story with it? Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after taking the bread, he took the blood. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Listen, sometimes the problem with this time in the desert is that it was partially your fault, wasn't it? That maybe we made a mistake and we're haunted by that. And kind of like the guilt of that stays with us. And Jesus says, this is a new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, I don't care that it was your fault. I have ways of dealing with that. It's time to begin again. Father, chances are that there are hearts in this room that have experienced a desert. 
and that so desperately need your redemptionist history to show them how you've been with them, present in the midst of their suffering and wandering. So as we worship now, would you, through your spirit, show them that, that they're not alone, that you're still with us because we're still alive, and that we can begin again. In the name of Jesus, we